0: On this episode of the Trade Busters podcast, we're going to be revisiting the topic of hedging. Before we continue, keep in mind that I'm not a financial advisor, so everything on this podcast is for informational purposes only and not to be construed as investment advice. Now, if you guys have been following the show, um, I did a couple of episodes on hedging a while back. There was episode 23, which was on a specific implementation of uh, doing a VIX call ladder hedge. And then episode 25, which was kind of my thoughts at the time of, uh, you know, the episode was basically called the why, the when, and the how of hedging. So obviously, it's just kind of my thoughts on different aspects of hedging and how to do it. And I say the thoughts at the time uh, because, and especially, you know, why am I revisiting this is because throughout the last year, uh, just experience with the market, how things have gone. Different ideas I've learned in different uh, strategies and portfolio construction concepts that I've picked up. It's kind of changed, uh, at least shaped my view on the idea of hedging a bit. And I, I figure it's a good time to kind of revisit this and just um, give you guys an update. So, first of all, you know, there is sometimes confusion as to what exactly is hedging and what's the purpose. And so if you look up what is a hedge you know on Investopedia, the definition, this is straight off the website, it says a hedge is an investment that is made with the intention of reducing the risk of adverse price movements in an asset. Normally, a hedge consists of taking an offsetting or opposite position in a related security. So, this specific definition is, it sounds like it's talking about if you, you know, they talk about an asset or security. So, if you buy a stock, for example, um, and you want to mitigate some of the associated risk with that. And so, one thing that jumps out at me is this idea of reducing risk, right? People want to reduce risk, right? Because you want return and you want low risk. But beyond that, this specific passage of taking an offsetting or opposite position, right? And that offsetting or offsetting position, the opposite position, that is how the mechanism of reducing risk happens. And and everybody wants to have risk with no reward. Now we know if you don't have any risk, right? You can't have reward. But there's the concept of risk-adjusted return, which means for the same level of return, something that has lower risk, is going to be viewed as better as something that has higher risk, right, given the same level of return. So people talk about, you know, sharp ratio, or you look at the ratio of your compound growth rate to the maximum drawdown, for example, these are just different ways of measuring risk to reward. And so, but again, going back to how this is accomplished, how you reduce the risk, right? If you're taking an offsetting position, it could be a position it could be a trade, it could be an adjustment or something the fact that it's offsetting or opposing your primary position or the one you're trying to protect, it it basically means when your uh, original position is winning or profiting, then the position that's a hedge will be losing, right? Because it's an offsetting or opposite position. So to some degree, it kind of almost doesn't make sense to hedge because you're essentially doing something that's the opposite or it benefits from the opposite of what your original goal is in the first place, right? And of course, again, we go back to the idea of you wanna mitigate the risk while keeping the return. And so if you can, you know, if you have a, a 10% return, right? And you lower the risk in half, but you also lower the return in half, then you're not really getting any kind of benefit in terms of the risk adjusted return, Because right? everything just cuts in half. Now, if you're able to actually have your return maybe cut only by 20%, but your risk is cut by 50%, right? then you're actually improving the risk-adjusted return. But again, you have to reduce that return. I think that's the expectation for one that people have to keep in mind. I don't think it's realistic to generally ever accept that you can increase or keep the same level of return if you also want to reduce the risk. And so coming back to this idea of if, if hedging requires you to essentially put on a position that is going to lose when your main trade is winning, then it's, it's basically counterintuitive. And what that comes back to in the idea I'm trying to get at is why not just do your main trade smaller in the first place, right? Because your strategy, whatever it is, it's going to have a certain risk reward profile, you know, depending on uh, the equity curve and the way the market's moving and accommodating your strategy. And so if you typically say you can have, you know, 10% return with 5% volatility, and that's not really, (laughs) I'm just making random numbers for sake of example. And so if adding a hedge, you know, puts you to 8% return with 4% volatility, right? Everything goes down a bit. But before you think about overcomplicating things of trying to hedge or trying to find some kind of counteracting position, you can always think about trading smaller first, sizing down, right? Because if you are saying that I'm willing to take a lower return to reduce the risk, then you don't have to complicate things. You can maybe just size down the position by 20% and you'll get that same you know, 10% drops to 8% return, 5% vol drops to 4% vol. And I think some people don't think of that naturally because they think of trying to find some kind of trick or some way where they can kind of uh, get more out of something without putting up the appropriate amount of risk and this idea of risk with no reward. Now, beyond that, uh, so I talked about you can just naturally size smaller. That's one way to reduce the risk. But another thing to think about is when you're talking about hedging, it's not always black and white, where you have to completely offset your loss, which that is something that you just shouldn't expect. Again, you you should always expect to have some kind of risk, right? If you can completely offset the risk, most likely you're going to completely mitigate the return as well. So on on the one extreme, trying to completely offset the risk, right? That's not going to be feasible. On the other end, you can try to just reduce the risk a little bit, right? Depending on your risk tolerance. So, my point is there's kind of a spectrum from hedging minor moves to hedging something major, something that's going to completely give you a large drawdown or some kind of crash, right? So called like a black swan hedge or hedging against a black swan event. And so, and then there's everything in between. But if you're talking about hedging for even just minor moves, and of the market even has like a 2% drop or 3% drop and you want to have some kind of hedge. When you're trying to hedge against minor moves, it's necessarily going to involve paying more. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is because uh, minor moves happen a lot, something that is going to pay off on a small move is also going to lose on just a normal market going up, right? just a normal situation. And so you're going to end up uh, it's going to be very choppy and you're going to pay a lot and kind of lose a lot on your hedge and that hedge loss will essentially be a drag on your return of your main strategy. And so you're going to have to find this balance. Whereas for, if you think about the Theta Engine strategy and the bomb shelter, and I've said this before in the podcast specifically pertaining to bomb shelter, but it's true that the bomb shelter, right, because it's long puts, it will... It's designed to benefit from something that's going to make the theta engine lose, right? But in this case, only an extreme event like a large crash. If it's something like a small grind down or just a small pop in volatility, there's plenty of situations where your theta engine may take a loss and your long puts on the bomb shelter will also take a loss. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not doing what it's supposed to. It's because by design, something like a bomb shelter, which is a black swan hedge, is really only going to kick in on a true kind of five or six standard deviation or large overnight gap, you know, something that's never happened before. And the idea here is that the hedge, in this case, is not your primary line of defense it's not your main risk management mechanic In the theta engine your primary risk management is the stop so that will always well not always but if everything is going normally that is supposed to kick in and get you out of the position long before something like the bomb shelter is going to come into play And so why even do the bombshell, right? Again, this is something where it's kind of unprecedented. And and I've said this before about kind of this opposing view between if you're trying to hedge against something that's never happened before, then why bother? And so it's that idea of if if it's something that helps you sleep at night, right? It's going to cost you a little bit, but it's structured specifically. So if there is something that's unprecedented and essentially a gap, right? A gap where the market's going to just blast past whatever your threshold of stop level is, right? And way past your planned amount of loss. And for me, that situation makes more sense because it's going to only be feasible or it's only gonna come into play in a situation that's completely out of my control and completely out of the um, control of the normal risk management mechanics. And so yes, black swan hedge, or uh, in this case, the bomb shelter, which is a black swan hedge, or the concept of black swan hedging in general, it's structured in such a way that yes, it's an opposing position, but it's not one that is going to cause undue drag on your main strategy, right? You're only paying a little bit. And because you're only paying a little bit, it's not going to pay out in a normal down market, in a normal choppy market. And that's kind of the trade-off. I think for this year... Especially with COVID, um, which, you know, at this point is two years ago, more than two years ago, but it's still kind of fresh in people's mind in terms of like volatility and crash hedging. Because remember, and I said this on, the, on the, even the VIX call ladder episode, leading up to this um, prior to 2020, the decade where we're getting vol compression, and the market was kind of getting complacent and there was just this relentless bull market and everyone thought stocks only go up. And so vols coming down, VIX is getting lower and the wings and the skew and options is getting lower. So those those long tail options are getting cheaper and cheaper. And so, you know, there was a time right before COVID where you could buy 30 strike calls on VIX and those are the 10 delta. Right. Or you can buy options that are like, you know, 10 percent out of the money. Um, for a certain amount of price whereas now you have to buy 20 percent 30 percent or the VIX 10 delta calls like 80 or 90 or something and so after that large tail event everything was kind of repriced volatility which is higher in general and the tail options were more expensive in general so there w- I already had the expectation that it wasn't you know I didn't think there was going to be anything that triggers a tail hedge anytime soon and even this year in 2022 with basically the market having 20% sell-off. You know, people were like complaining, oh, not just about the bomb shelter, but just like people who ran tail hedge strategies in general or tail hedge funds, those tail hedging type of strategies generally didn't do much. But again, that's just because of the way the last couple of years have played out and the market expectations. And the idea is that like, because everyone knew, or at least for now, (laughs) they're reminded that tail events happen everyone's tail hedging and if everyone's tail hedging then the options stay expensive and therefore they're not going to get that pop when something like even apparently a 20% crash happens so uh, again thinking about the difference between the hedge being a primary or secondary um, line of defense for your portfolio or strategy that's something to kind of consider and another thing is if you're talking about uh, you have to think about what exactly you're hedging, right? So if you have an equity portfolio, for whatever reason, right, you don't, you just want to have a long-term buy and hold, and you don't want to lower it. Because remember, going back to that concept of sizing, if you want to lower the risk and volatility of an equity portfolio, you could just scale out of it a little bit, right? You don't have to sell everything, but you can lower the exposure, eighty percent exposed, sixty percent exposed. Now, if forever re- for whatever reason, let's say maybe tax implications, you don't want to sell it, you want to keep the exposure you have. And so you don't want to change the sizing of your equity exposure, but you still want to hedge it. In this case, it may make sense because if you hold equities, you know, they're going to have that volatility, right? Like this year, there was a 20% drawdown or 30% drawdown in QQQ, for example. And so you could do some kind of tail hedge just to Um, in the cases where you're going to have a large shock or a large crash. And in this case, it may be okay to essentially say, hey, I'm going to allocate a fixed budget to buy a tail hedge, right? And it has to be something you're pretty much willing to kind of just throw the money away, right? This is like car insurance or house insurance. You're only going to need it and there'll be a payout if something catastrophic really happens. So in this case, you aren't really even expecting the hedge to make money. And I'm not just talking about a crash, right? In the long term, if you get lucky and you buy a hedge and the market crashes and you make a bunch of money, that's just luck. But even long term, let's say you go five or six years just paying this bleed, right? On on buying these options or buying the hedge. And then in year six or you know, further down or year 10, you finally get this humongous payout. Even that humongous payout, may not be enough to offset the bleed and the cost that you've incurred throughout the previous years leading up to that tail event. But that may actually be okay. So let's just take the assumption that even including that big payout, let's say your your net profit on hedging is flat or even slightly negative. This might actually be okay if you have a portfolio like equity where you want to prevent drawdowns. Because remember, if we just kind of walk through like a simple scenario, let's say you go through like a 20% crash where normally your stock portfolio will be down 20%. Now, let's say your hedge kicks in, you're able to offset half of that, right? Your hedge makes 10%. So instead of being down 20, you're down 10. And normally how that manifests is your stocks, because they're unrealized, if you don't sell, they'll be down 20%. But your hedge may generate 10%, right? Because you probably sell the options, that right? They'll become cash. So you take that cash and you can essentially take that cash and dump that back in and buy more stock, right? And now you're able to take advantage of the volatility in the down market to generate cash from the hedge and buy more stock. And so when it does go back up, you further increase your return on the way up. So what that does is there's an effect where you actually reduce your drawdown and improve your return and your compounding on the way back up. So the reason i walked through that example is this is one instance where the if you're looking at just the hedge that strategy in isolation it may have made zero dollars or even slightly negative but in combination with your other portfolio the fact that you had a lower drawdown on the way up and then a a bigger recovery on the way up um, because you were able to buy more shares that net effect on the compounding will will probably be greater. That'll be a net positive, right? You'll end up better than if you did not have the hedge at all. So again, the reason I mention that is that is an example specifically where, you know, it's obviously path dependent and, you know, depends on how exactly the market scenario plays out. But it's a situation where you might actually get a net benefit from hedging, even if the hedging in isolation does not make a profit. And so uh, finally, so basically that smoothens out the equity curve. Now, so today so far, we've talked about just in terms of if you want to hedge, you know, consider sizing down, right? You make it the same effect of reducing returns, but reducing volatility without actually having to complicate things and trying to run a, a, a hedge. The other thing is if you're going to use a hedge, think about whether or not uh, for me like I said I will use that as a secondary line of defense only in kind of a black swan situation where I can't control the loss under normal circumstances either through adjustments or through you know a stop loss. And then thirdly is the idea is that looking at hedging in combination with what else you're doing in your portfolio, that may have a the the sum um, some of the parts Uh, sorry, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. That's what I'm trying to say. If you combine them, you may have a net effect that's better than just looking at hedging and isolation. And finally, to kind of wrap up, um, I wanted to say that lately, I've been kind of doing research into multiple strategies. You know, there's zero DTE, and now I'm doing some fixed income with like the bond laddering or T-bills because of interest rates have gone up. And of course, I've been running the Theta engine. And I've also been kind of exploring other um, other funds and other managers in the space. I'm thinking about allocating with you know other managers that run volatility strategies, or maybe even some kind of trend following um, CTAs. And there's traditionally or before it may those kind of products may only have been available to kind of institutional's or you know high net worth individuals because of the high uh, high minimums. But now there may be some ETFs that are available to Retail, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because, in terms of when you think of hedging, and not only thinking about using opposing positions to reduce risk, but what I'm kind of steering towards now is just trying to diversify. Literally trying to find uncorrelated strategies and using reduced correlation as a way to um, reduce risk. If you go on YouTube and Google uh, Ray Dalio and the Holy Grail portfolio. Um, there's a short video about the fact that uh, if you have multiple assets that may have similar, so, so individually have similar risk reward profiles, but if they have, you know, low or no correlation, if you can combine more and more of these kind of non-correlated income streams, the net effect is that, you know, and again, the key is they have to be non-correlated or have low correlation. The net effect is, return of the portfolio can go up while the portfolio volatility will actually go down again and that will give you a better risk adjusted return than any one of the individual components now you have to be careful of what exactly you know your takeaway in your portfolio constructions because obviously you know one kind of um uh, portfolio that comes to mind is kind of the typical 60-40 where it's, uh, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and that was supposed to provide some kind of non-correlation. But obviously that did not work very well this year because this was the year where stocks went down and bonds went down, right? But for me, it's not just about picking different assets or trying to pick like, okay, I'm gonna allocate to stocks, allocate to gold, allocate to bonds, whatever. That that's that approach can work and it's been shown to work long term. But for me, I've really been thinking about like just trying to find different strategies and i know that's easier said than done because obviously some people have trouble just doing one strategy profitably right but if you can really look for like if you're trying to find you know trying to make 10 to 15% compound growth rate a year steadily right so if you find two or three strategies and each of them only make you know 3 4 or 5% then you combine those then you're going to get you know 15 some percent return and if they're truly uncorrelated you, the the key is if you do kind of an ensemble of different strategies, you can size each strategy down sufficiently where none of them have to be a home run. And so I think that's something where people who first start out may not really think about that because usually when you start and you're excited, you want to make like, okay, I want to make huge returns, 20%, 30%. You know, Not to mention people try to double their account. That's obviously way too much. But the fact to, to actually step back and think, okay, I want to do a strategy where I'm only trying to make or 4%. I think that's kind of a mindset that not a lot of people may approach it that way. But that's kind of the direction that I've been leaning. And when you do that, when you size each one appropriately, you don't necessarily even have to quote unquote hedge any of them. Now for Theta Engine, I'll still do that black swan hedge again because that's to control risk that is out of my control, right? For some kind of gap event. But besides that, if you have multiple strategies that are really small, whereas the drawdown of each one is you know, relatively contained, then again, the the sum of the parts, right? It's gonna be greater than the whole. And I think that's one way to think about, and that in it, that itself is a kind of hedge, right? You're hedging with that diversification, right? Instead of hedging, trying to get fancy and use opposing strategies, hedging by using diverse strategies and having the non-correlation what improves the uh, risk adjusted return so anyways that's kind of the thoughts that i had recently and the direction i'm going Uh, but uh, in the meantime i think let's leave it there for now as always if you guys enjoyed this episode please take a moment to rate review and subscribe to the podcast you can also visit my trading page at www.thetradebusters.com where you'll find all the strategy mechanics trade logs and various essays i've written and other podcasts i recommend Finally, you can follow me on Twitter at TheTradeBuster. That's it for today. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.